Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Broadcast it live. There are balls coming from all over the place. Left field, center field, right field. See, this this is the kind of thing, quite honestly, right now, that makes you want to see the Chicago Cubs team lose. Now, are you just saying you want to have fun, or do you really want to have fun? It'll be fun. Will the next person that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, or get them out of here? You don't live in Cleveland. Get in you talking to me? You talking to me? That is the farthest thing in the universe from the truth. Hello, everyone, live. It's the Dan Scott Show. And right there is your host, Dan Scott. And hi again, and welcome to the Dan Scott Show podcast, episode five of the rebrand. Can't tell you how excited I am to have you joining us and looking forward to spending a little more than an hour with you as it turns out this time with a fantastic guest. Um, You know, I always say optimistically that I think we've got a good show or a good podcast for you, depending on the platform Because I really do. I try to bring something to the table that's informative and entertaining. Uh, Whether I succeed or not, that's another story sometimes. I can promise you in this episode of the podcast that you're going to get informed, you're going to get entertained, and you're going to get something with a much, much deeper meaning than perhaps you normally hear here or anywhere else. And it's all because of our guest, and I'll tell you who that is in just a moment. Because of the length of the podcast, normally we would drop some commercial breaks in. I'm not going to do that this time. I I will just tell you that at the end of the podcast, I'll thank our sponsors quickly, uh, individually. Uh, The the only exception to that is our presenting sponsor, Tadaro Pizza, in uh, downtown Greenville, South Carolina, close to where we are uh, doing the, the show on a regular basis. Uh, they're, they're just fantastic. Uh, great people. The pizza is bucket list style pizza. I keep saying that if you're not from this area and you're coming to the upstate of South Carolina, specifically Greenville, put it on your list. It's a, a New York style pizza, but it's unlike anything you've ever had. It, it is just incredible. If you're in the area and coming by, the uh, lunch buffet is back open now from uh, Sunday through Friday at lunchtime for eight bucks. And then Wednesday night, six o'clock on is Dollar Slice Night. You can find out more uh, by uh, just Googling them, Todaro, T-O-D-A-R-O, Pizza. Uh, They have a website. You can find them on Facebook, on Twitter. There's a Clemson location as well. Uh, And when you go to the one in Greenville, thank John for his uh, continued support of what we do here on the podcast. Now, as I mentioned, it's because of our guest today that I feel like you're going to be informed and entertained And hopefully much more than that. Jeff Allen is a nationally touring comedian, just an incredibly funny man. He has a Christian testimony unlike any that that you've likely ever heard. And when I say that he does not pull any punches about where he was, the type of man he was, 
and what it took to get him to God, I mean he does not pull any punches. And uh, in this conversation, we, we talk about a number of things, his comedy uh, and his, his passion for the sport of baseball, which I had never heard uh, until the morning uh, that we recorded this. I had done some review work, and I heard him talking about a, a passion for baseball. So that covers the sports angle. That and some, some talk about golf that you'll hear as well. But what it took to get him to Christ and what Jesus has done in his life since then, it's an incredible story. We went for just over an hour. So uh, sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with comedian and Christian Jeff Allen. Our guest on this edition of the Dan Scott Show podcast is a funny, funny man. Jeff Allen has been a comedian for a long time, has a unique view on the world, and uh, more importantly than any of that, is a Christian comedian, uh, which uh, gives him an even more unique perspective, I would think, and uh, just incredibly excited to have him on the program with us on the podcast. Jeff, welcome to uh, the podcast. How are you? I'm good, Dan. How are you? Are you doing all right? I, I'm as well as can be expected for somebody in my condition, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's the way I feel. Yeah. My granddaughter says to me one day, um, I, I cracked my neck. I made a more noise, and she looks at me. She's seven. She's she said, what was that? I go, that's ah, Papa. He's kind of creaky like an old house. And she looks at me and goes, why are you still alive? So I thought that was a good question. <laughs> well, and, and knowing a little bit about your story and background is probably a little deeper meaning to that question than a seven-year-old grandchild could know, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. She, she doesn't know the history. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Hey, so um, let, let, let's kind of work backwards a little bit. You are on a, uh, a, a tour right now called The America That I Grew Up In, and uh, if I remember correctly, this was supposed to get rolling full steam back in, what, 2019 and 2020, and then the virus kind of put it on uh, the kibosh a little bit. But I just uh, checked your schedule. It looks right. like you're working, uh, if not every night now, touring uh, multiple, multiple nights every week. Yeah, it's exhausting. I, as a matter of fact, I had a conversation with my wife last night. Um, I said I got to slow down. I, uh, I'm 65. Uh, if I was 40, that's different. But um, it's uh, it's a grind, and um, I need to be a little more selective and at my time, you know. But again, we were making up for lost time because of COVID. So um, we had. 60 or 70 dates on the book when COVID hit, and they all got postponed like three different times. And then you're adding new dates and uh, all of a sudden you're out uh, 20, 25 days in a month. And you're like, Oh my gosh, man, I'm exhausted. So, and I do like her, you know, I like being around her. So why, why, why still do this at, at that kind of pace? And, and again, I know this is an exaggerated pace because you're making up dates, but at 65 years old, why still do this? I love it. I love what I do. It's a, it, oh, again the travel and, and being away from home is the is the balancing act. It's not the show. I love performing. I love uh, meeting people uh, after the shows. Uh, um, I've heard some great stories. I had a woman with Parkinson's 
uh, who hasn't been out of the house in 18 months. Uh, she's been watching the videos online, and she just had to go. So she uh, she came out, and um, you know, very high risk, and um, uh, just to watch the comedy show. She just said, I was I was in her town, so she wanted to come out and watch it. And it's um, it's it's just interesting to me. Anyway, I just love what I do. I really do love what I do. I, I couldn't do it if I didn't. I mean, not, not at this pace, that's for sure. Well, but and, the travel is just is what's grinding. Well, God's obviously given you a talent to to do what you do, and, and I know that you're using using that talent to to not only make people laugh, but to bring Him glory. And we and we want to get in get into that that aspect of it as well. Um, and, and I don't want to give away much of of your show because obviously we want people to buy tickets and come out and and watch you but when when people come and see this tour the america i grew up in uh, what what are they going to hear uh just observations it's um uh you know i i i'm what they call it comment happens in my life and i talk about it so it's stories about what's 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 happening and uh, the, the America I grew up in came from a, an observation of just watching our children raise their children. And um, Tammy and I talked about it laying in bed. You know, if we raised our kids today the way we raised them 30 years ago, we would probably lose custody. They would probably some Karen down the street would call it in on us and haul us away or something. You know, letting the kids play in the streets unsupervised, you know, is, uh, is so taboo today, you know. And um, we just felt that the kids, our kids, intellect had evolved enough to get out of the way of a moving vehicle. And uh, and if not, we would just go in the house and make another one. So, that was, <laughs> so that's, we knew how to do that. So anyway, it was, that's kind of the the genesis of the whole thing was just, it's not a judgment call on one generation being better than another. And some of the people who comment on my comments, uh, they need to be reminded of that. It's, I'm not making a judgment call. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying it's different. It's all it is. It's different. Well, let me, the helmets, you know, all of that. uh, Yeah. I, and and that's exactly where I was going to go. When, when you were growing up, had you gone out to ride a bicycle with a helmet on, how badly would you have gotten beaten up? Oh, I would have needed the helmet to protect me from the rocks the kids were throwing at me. <laughs> you know, so, as they mocked me, hey, helmet boy. You know? <laughs> and again, I'm not saying it's it's right or wrong. You know, again, I, I get people who go, you want kids to die from head wounds. I go, no. I mean, you know, lighten up. You want to wear a helmet, wear one. I just don't want to mandate it. That's all. I hate the word mandate. That's all. Yeah, it's a, a word. That's that we, why I, I've even I've even added this to my show. The insurance companies should have a moron clause in their policies. You do something so moronic, why should they have to cover for it? You know, like on the Fourth of July. What, you know, what made you think spitting an M eighty out of your mouth was a good idea? No, we're not going to cover that. You know, but uh, you got to have the right to be stupid. That's how you learn not to do things that are stupid. Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, uh, we, we lived on a, a, a street that, you know, two hills converged into one little patch of, of level asphalt. So, you know, what did we do? We got the piece of board and the cinder blocks, and we set up ramps 
and and jump their bicycles right. like like morons, idiots, you know, right. that kind of thing. And if one of my I children tried to the roof of my house with a towel around my neck, of course there was no adult there supervising that. Obviously, they would have. I think my mother would have talked me off the roof. But uh, anyway, I learned one time is all it took. When you start doing things two and three times, then you need help, psychological help. Yeah, no but question. God gave us God gave us pain to teach us. That's all. Um, moron seems to be a, a word that is is kind of big in in your lexicon. Uh, and, 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 and your life, and, and we're going to get into your testimony yeah. here in just a little bit, and, and that's, that's one of the things that every time I hear it, I, I laugh, but I get it. But uh, that, that seems to be a word that you're not afraid to use. Not, not very politically correct, but appropriate in a lot of cases. In my life, yeah. It was funny. I was on a golf course at home here uh, a couple of years ago. I'll never forget this because... I hit a golf shot. I was playing through a group of four. I was by myself, and I hit a shot with a wedge, and I yelled out, moron, I can't believe it. I'm such a moron. And I get up on the green, and the guy goes, say moron again. I go, moron. He goes, you're a comedian, aren't you? I go, yeah. He goes, I hear you on XM radio all the time. Nobody says moron like you. (laughs) So I thought that was what a thing to be known for. I'm a moron. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, uh, I, yeah, I, yeah, I guess that's been my mantra. You know, I well, do stupid things. Well, and a smarter guy probably would have patented that particular use of the word too. Copyrighted it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you could do that, but I, <laughs> I did how I copyright "Happy Wife, Happy Life," and it's it, it, trademarked, and it's uh, that didn't mean nothing. So. We are visiting with Jeff Allen, uh, comedian. And uh, just as I said earlier, a funny, funny man on uh, this edition of the Dan Scott Show podcast. Um, let's, uh, th- th- as I told you before we started this, uh, I, I kind of rebranded my podcast uh, a short time ago. Uh, and actually, you probably would have fit into the first edition of it because we called it Grumpy Old Broadcasters. So, but, but, uh, nobody was listening to it. So I decided to go with, with the strength of, of the old radio show and see if I could play off of the name a little bit. But, um, in, in any event, uh, the, and I, I forgot where I was going with this thing. Age, right. Uh, it, it happens all the time right. in, in, yes, in, in the, re, in, in the, in the rebra- uh, rebranding of it. That's where I was going. Um, it, it's it's still a sports related podcast, but it's also heavy on on my testimony and, and sharing Christ and, and 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 doing what I can to bring Him glory. I, I've listened to your testimony. I told you this a little while ago, a dozen times, and and, and it's just an incredible, incredible uh, example of how God can work in somebody's life. And we want you to tell that story here in a bit. But I, I listened to a compilation of it this morning before we did this interview, and it's the first time I had heard you talk about having a passion for the sport of baseball when you were growing up. And, and I wanted to ask you about that because that's been my single sport passion my entire life. And I was just curious as to where that came from. And then I know that uh, you, you kind of walked away from that passion a little bit. Well, I didn't walk away. It's interesting. Um... I lived and breathed it. I, uh, I, you know, my brother was five years older than me, so I started playing before I, I have even memory. Five, six, seven years old, I 
Um, I remember I was, my birthday's June 5th, and if you weren't seven or eight years old by June 1st, you weren't allowed to play Little League, and I would have had to wait another year. And I remember my parents calling down and begging them to give me an exemption. And I was certainly good enough to play Little League. I mean, I, so anyway, I was in a bathtub when my mother yelled upstairs. She goes, your, your new baseball coach is here. And I ran downstairs naked. I was so excited. I, didn't even, I forgot to get close <laughs> to meet my first baseball coach. Uh, it was my passion. Um, and I tell you this, uh, I was 14 or 15, and I um, I won a um, MVP award for an all-star tournament. It was a proud moment in my life. And I was sitting in the living room with the trophy, and my father came in. And he sat me down, and this is when he gave me his view on God the universe. He said, uh, there's going to come a time in your life. The goal was that I would play professional. That was everybody, we talked like that. Um, you're going to play professional ball and, and, and things. You know, this is, that's the plan. So anyway, he sat me down and he said, as you advance through um, these ranks of every level that you play in, Eventually, people are going to come to you and tell you you have a God-given talent, and this is what you tell them. And he went off on a rant. Of, he told me, "Kiss your backside. There is no God. God had nothing to do with this." He said, "What really bothers me about these God people is they're never there for all the hard work. They just see the finished product and say God did that." You know, I was out every even in the winter. I was out throwing a ball against the wall and, and working on my reflexes and, and you know and all of this I, I worked at baseball I worked 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 by the time I was in high school I was in three leagues in the summer uh, one of them was a men uh, you know, I remember uh, I was a catcher in my junior year I got moved to catcher and we had a pitcher that got drafted by the White Sox he threw over 90 miles an hour and that he was before he went to college instead of to the pros. He wanted to go to college, so he didn't take him up on their offer. So he was playing in a summer men's league, and their catcher couldn't catch him because he threw too hard. So they called me in to catch some games. So I had two or three leagues going on at the same time, and uh, my father tells me there's no God, and. Uh, I bought it. I just started telling my friends, you know, there's no God. There's no. And um, within four years, I was out of baseball. And it wasn't that I got injured. It wasn't that. It just the all of a sudden what my father neglected to mention to me was what he called hard work was joy. Nobody ever had to tell me to go out and do baseball I they had to tell me to clean my room they had to tell me to do homework they had to tell me to do all these things that I did not like baseball was not hard work it was joy and when I heard the term years later years later that the term uh, the definition of inspiration is God breathed 
I believed God breathed that into me. I was put on this earth, I felt like, to play baseball. That's what I was there for. And it, I had a mourn. When I dropped out of college because I got, I started drinking not too long after that. And uh, all of a sudden, baseball got moved down in my priority list to two or three. Drinking was number one. I just wanted to go out and party on the weekends. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, I still managed to hit, I don't know, I think 385 my senior year, half drunk or hung over most of the season. Um, I made all the teams, the all-conference team. I think I was second team all-state. I was, I was a catcher in the, in the state that had a higher batting average than I was. But um, I was invited to some uh, banquets and things that uh, the top players in the Chicago area got invited to. And I just looked. I had a certificate. It was funny. I told my wife, I go, uh, this has been laying down in my uh, in my bathroom in my office for years. I, I've never even looked at it. It had my high school letter on it and it had some other things on it. It was just some stuff that my mom left me when she passed. And I pulled it out. It was a certificate, a sports certificate from my high school. I had like seven different records for our high school. Um, I had fewer strikeouts. I had two strikeouts. In, I had five strikeouts in two years of varsity ball. You know, um, so by college, drinking was everything. Uh, I remember when I got recruited, it was a small JC. I, I, I found out later I was drinking at a bar in Chicago in my 20s, and the team manager from our high school came over to me, uh, and he said, did I ever tell you what happened with all your letters from colleges? I go, oh, I didn't even know I got a letter. He goes, no, the coach sent them all back. He had over 30 letters from Division One schools, and uh, not one of them. I didn't see one of them. They were all sent back. Insubordinate would not fit into your program. And uh, I, again, knowing who I was at that point in my life, I would have never fit in a Division I would have never made it. I would have dropped out. Um, the, the drinking was just out of hand. But um, it would have been nice to have the option, you know, to pick a school, you know, and um, go through that process. But college was never discussed in our home. My father never went. My mother never went. So it was never anything discussed. I was a terrible student. But I believe God just removed his breath from that, that inspiration. Just, you know, when you throw it back in his face, you know, he didn't punish me. He just said, I got other people. You know, only so many people on the planet can be inspired to do certain things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly because that's almost what it was like. It was all of a sudden it just became a chore, like cleaning your room and doing your homework. You know, you got to work out, you got to batting practice, you know, as a catcher, man, you know, <laughs> you're in on every play. You got to back up first base. You got to, you know, it's just, eh, you know, and halfway through our fall ball at college, my coach came over to me and goes, you just don't seem to be the guy I recruited while well, I was half drunk. I was drinking at lunch and then going to baseball practice. You know, so I, at least I stopped doing that because I figured he noticed. You know, and uh, you know, I had a decent year my freshman year. 
But um, anyway, it just went away. I haven't touched a ball since then, 40 years. My kids didn't want to play. You know? And um, I had a morning. I went to a therapist for some other issue. And he was a, um, he got to the big leagues and threw his rotator out. And we got to talking about baseball. And he said, have you dealt with the grief of that loss? And I go, no, why would I do that? He goes, why do you think so many grown men sit bars drunk talking about the glory days? That was their only sense of self. And I never thought of it that way, but he's right. It was the only path. I told my wife I've had one true love in my life, and that's baseball. I mean, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to be self to be so absorbed in something that that's all you think about. You wake up in the morning and your eyes open up and go, "What can I do today?" Then, I mean, and um, and then just to have it gone. Uh, when they told me I was ineligible my sophomore year because of grades, I remember sitting on the in the gym just sobbing. What am I going to do? You know, and you know, would have been nice to think about that while I was getting drunk all the time, but. Uh, that's the alcoholism. You know, you, you destroy everything in its path. It destroyed everything in, in my path. We are visiting with Jeff Allen, uh, comedian on the uh, Dan Scott Show podcast. Uh, this is uh, episode five of the rebrand. Uh, in the midst of, of all of this and in the time afterwards, when did you realize that you were funny and that maybe comedy might be a road for you to travel? That's interesting. I uh, I was I got out of college. I met somebody at college, like the girl I was dating. Her best friend's boyfriend was a brilliant, I mean, brilliant close-up magician. And I remember we were sitting in a bar and, and said, "I do magic," and I kind of rolled my eyes. He goes, uh, "Here, give me give me five coins." So he, he takes a quarter, a dime, a nickel, a penny, and I don't know whatever else, another penny maybe. And he proceeds to push each coin through the table into a glass, and it blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. Uh, I, I had never seen close-up magic. I've seen Doug Henning on TV and things. So I said, "How do you how do you learn to do that?" He goes, uh, "Well, I, I, you, know, you learn. I mean, it's, so anyway, I started close-up magic, and uh, I got fairly adept at it by the time I left college, and I was able to entertain at parties and things." And, uh, I saw my brother was a musician and he, he had a couple of comedians open for him. And I remember thinking, wow, I would love to do that. You know, I don't know if I can. I mean, you know, I made my friends. You know, a lot of us do. I, you know, you know, so I don't know. You know, I don't know if you ever think you could do it. But anyway, I, I, I took me months to work the courage up. I found a comedy club. I was in a jewelry company at the time and 20, 21 years old, maybe. And um, I was going to um, uh, do comedy. I went into this comedy club, and I just didn't have the courage. I just, I, you know, didn't. it took me three months, August to November, to finally work the courage up to go on stage. And I did the magic, and I was dropping things. I had terrible stage fright, terrible nerves. Um, so to answer your question is I, I wasn't funny for a very long time. I, I, I felt that if I could get past the nerves, I could do this. I could get there. Um, 
I, I didn't understand the process of stand-up when I started. I remember months into it, I saw a guy write into a notebook, and I go, you write this stuff out? I thought you went on stage and talked about your day. So I would just talk about my day, and it wasn't very funny. You know, uh, when I finally, uh, there were nights, the first six months I did it, that I, I couldn't even make a minute. I would get, I would draw a blank. My mind would go blank, which has been an issue with auditions for me for 40 years. And I just did it through America's Got Talent. I drew two blanks during the uh, audition process. Um, I just, for whatever reason, there's, there's, you know, there's something there um, that nerve-wise that causes me to, to draw blanks but um so no i wasn't funny and i had after two years i had a club owner tell me he goes you'll never make a living at this and i said thank you i said anybody anybody who's ever made anything in their life has had some jerk in their life tell them they won't make anything in their life you're my jerk i'm, I'm gonna do this i'm gonna get through this and uh uh it really i'm not kidding uh, i made a living i was lucky uh, i started in 1978 comedy clubs exploded in 1980 there were more clubs than there were comedians, really. So I was able to be bad at something. And uh, I was competent enough. I made people laugh, you know, but I wasn't what I would call a, a comic. I wasn't there yet. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was fishing around with different things, drugs and alcohol stuff, you know, but that's when I kind of happened upon the coincidental stuff. I found people laughed at my stuff when it, when there was truth to it. And there was angst behind it. So my first big story that ever got huge laughs was I had a, a my third Volkswagen. They're they're terrible cars. Um, I but they were it was five hundred bucks for a car. You could change an engine on a Volkswagen, the kind I'm talking about. You know, for four hundred dollars, you can. They're four bolts and a and a radio flyer wagon. You know, <laughs> you can take the whole engine out. You know. So anyway, I would push start this thing. I had to park on a hill because I couldn't afford a new starter. You know, I had to pop the clutch, start, you know. So anyway, I come running into a club one night, almost missed my show because my stupid car wouldn't start. And I hit the stage and I started screaming about the stupid Volkswagen. You know, if you can get the heater working, it'll burn every hair off your ankle. You know, the, the frosting system's nothing but your breath in a rag, you know, and on and on about the bug. And I'm, all of a sudden I hit me in the middle of the story. Gosh, people are laughing. They're laughing hard. This is amazing. You know, so that was like my first breakthrough as a comic was there's, there has to be some truth to it. And uh, there has to be some kind of angst behind it. So um, anyway, I started looking for things that annoyed me. And uh, boy, it's amazing how many things there are out there. I, and, and you know what? I, I'm going to resist the temptation to say something about that's when you got married, uh, as we as we transition yeah, into that yeah, part about yeah. it. So, what'd you do before you got married? I starved. That's what I did. I starved. <laughs> We're visiting with Jeff Allen, uh, just, just uh, an incredible comedian, uh, funny man uh, with, with a great, great testimony about what Christ has done. To, uh, in his life, through his life, um, and he's out on tour now uh, in the uh, America that I grew up in tour. We'll talk about some of those upcoming dates as we get to the end. And, and Jeff, I told you that I wanted to be respectful of your time, and you were gracious enough to, to kind of adjust so we could have some more time. And, and I know it's easy for people to go out and on YouTube, and they can find your testimony, and they can they can do that if they want to. 
But as, as much as, as you can share in, in the time that we have here, I, I'd like you to walk us through that because there is just some incredible moments there that resonate with me. I shared a little bit with you about the similarity of, 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 uh, of our stories when we both came to Christ. We got there in different ways, but uh, I was a knucklehead. I almost lost everything I love because I was an idiot or moron, to borrow your phrase or word. But uh, just... Uh, it, I'm just going to sit back and I'm just going to let you go. I think it's important to do that because I want people to hear exactly how you came to Christ and what a miracle it was that Jesus did in your life. Well, I, I got to back up and lead into it with getting married. I um, I met Tammy at a comedy club. Uh, she was a single mom. I was living on a, I had a mattress on a floor in an apartment in LA and I had a uh, 13 inch black and white television I bought at some pawn shop. And um, I met Tammy in November. I flew her and her son out to LA in January. And in April, I asked her to marry me. She got pregnant again in May and we got married in July. So that's, and the whole time I was drinking, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. So I'm using cocaine and I'm drinking the whole time. And uh, I was a binge drinker. I would dry out for two or three days and then I'd binge for four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever. You know, eventually I would just go, you know, I'm killing myself. I got to stop. I tried to quit numerous times. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time when I was 25. I, 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 had, I had a night where I got so trashed that the guys at the bar tied my shoelaces together after I passed out the bar. So when I stood up, I fell on my face and, uh, they, they were laughing at me and, uh, I was humiliated and I untied, I took one shoe off and I walked home about a mile and a half, one shoe on, one shoe off crying all the way home. And I called my dad up the next day and I said, you need to come get me. I can't stop drinking. I can't. And uh, I realized that everybody I was drinking with that night before were brothers of the guys I grew up with. They were the younger brothers that we used to make fun of when we were kids. My friends wouldn't drink with me anymore, my peers. So my dad came and got me and I, and I got some help, but I was still using cocaine and, uh, I was about nine months without a drink and that kind of gave me a foundation to exist. So I started what I called my own maintenance program of drinking. And that was the binge drinking. I would, I would stay together enough to do my shows and I would drink alone. Um, the disease of alcoholism is isolation. I think the disease of humanity is isolationism. There's no coincidence that when they want to destroy somebody's life and they throw them in prison, they put them in isolation. We're, we're, we were designed to be in community. And I was never more alone in my life. I mean, I could go to a crowded bar. When I say I drink alone, I, I, you know, I'd go to a crowded bar. There were always people around me, but I was by myself. I always, because if I fell off a stool or embarrassed myself, there was nobody there that knew me 
that I would worry about. I don't know if you understand that. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, when I met Tammy, I decided I needed to get married. I, I needed some responsibility. That was my process of why I needed to get married. It wasn't about falling in love with the one, spending the rest of my life with the one, raising a family. And, and it was, I got to do this to get well. So anyway, she got pregnant, and it was interesting. When she found out she was pregnant, she sobbed. She just sobbed because she knew what it meant. And I was I was such an idiot. I was a moron. I was like going, hey, this is great. We're going to have another Bambino. Wow, you know. I, I, not even any idea what I was getting myself into. So that <clears throat> we moved to Boston. I, we got married in July. We moved to Boston in August, and I was drinking. And uh, I was able to drink on the road prior to Boston because that's the only place I could make a living. Well, Boston, I was allowed to make a living. I could stay in town and make money, enough money to, to live on. So I didn't have to travel. Well, I started binging at home, and Tammy got to see firsthand what she married. The first time I pulled an all-nighter, I, I, I walked in at 11 o'clock the next morning. She was on the phone sobbing with the club owner trying to figure out where I was. This was obviously date, you know, predate cell phones. Mm-hmm. And uh, I walked in and um, she ended up throwing the phone at me because I was in a great mood. Didn't even begin to understand. I never had anybody. I never had a reason to be anywhere. I mean, I never had any um, demands on my time. I was a single guy, and then I wasn't single. I, I you know, I, I didn't have, you know, a girlfriend for nine, 10 months, you know, where we dated and went out and she would ask me what I'm doing and where are you going? And all of a sudden I, I, I got this thing, this family that's demanding my time. And I was resentful. Nobody ever asked me, why are you drinking again? You know, why, why are you doing that again? You know, she didn't do nothing about the cocaine. I mean, I, I was robbing Peter to pay Paul so I could pay the, for the Coke and, you know, uh, it doesn't take much time to figure. Some had to give. Some had to give. And um, I came home one night. This is probably eight, nine months into our marriage. Ryan was born in January. We were married in July. So this is probably May of the next year. So Ryan's four months old, five months old. And I came home and uh, tried to put together where all of this guilt I have comes from. I, I really love it when the world tells us that we're not, that guilt is such a bad thing. God gave us guilt so that we had to look at our lives and figure out maybe there's something wrong. We're doing something wrong. You know, there's a certain modicum of behavior that one should have as a human being. And guilt reminds us that maybe we're off the rails. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm sitting there. What is wrong? What is all this guilt? Why am I guilty? And I realize it's the family. The family, you know, this all has started with marriage and kids and responsibility and stuff. And, and I'm drinking rum and doing cocaine and, try, you know, and trying to figure this all out. And then it dawns on me, if I could get rid of the marriage, I'm not, I don't want to be married anymore. And again, we're not even 10 months into this. I'm going, I, I don't want this anymore. And I got to get her to divorce me. I, 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 I'm not going to go ask for a divorce, so... In my stupor, I realize if I drag her out of bed and beat her, 
she'll have to divorce me because what kind of woman can live with a man that would do that to her? You know, I'm telling you, I was insane. So anyway, I had a couple more rums and some more um, coke and worked the courage up and I walk into the bedroom and uh, I was standing over my wife who's sound asleep, you know. It's like two in the morning, I don't know. Anyway, I start having this crisis of conscience. This is wrong. You know, it is wrong, but it's wrong. I can't do this. I can't, you know, and I'm, and I'm wrestling back and forth. I got to get out of this, you know, and my son starts crying. Ryan, five, six months now, you know, and uh, I start panicking. He's going to wake her up and I can't, you know, I can't, you know, just going to figure out what I was doing. So anyway, I go to quiet him down and I end up beating him in the crib. And, um, Tammy took him away from me and calls me insane. You're insane. You're you're crazy. Could you realize what you could have done? And I, I I didn't realize what I could have done. She sat on the end of the bed, and fed him. She fed our son. He was crying because he was hungry. And that's when it hit me. I just beat my child because he was hungry, and I could have killed him. I could have killed my son. I've, I've, I've got to interject something here because I've heard you tell this story, obviously, before. And it, it, it is a powerful part of your testimony. Um, and and it's, it sounds strange to say this, but I think you know where I'm going when I say this. It takes a lot of courage for you to be able to share that particular portion of your testimony because of all of the, even these years later, the negativity that that conjures up uh, in, in society and in the world, and, and yet you're willing to, to bare your soul where that's concerned. Well, I, I was told early on, if you want to survive alcoholism, you're as sick as your secrets. So obviously this is stuff that I shared with therapists behind closed doors. But the first time I shared it publicly, the men that reached out to me, that told me, they did the same thing. I mean, hundreds of people privately told me that they, they were the same, in the same place, the same, they could have killed their kids. They could have, you know, and um, it's not a, Unfortunately, I've always say this. My story is not uncommon in America with men. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not an uncommon story. You know, un unfortunately, it would be great if I was an anomaly. If people looked at me and said, well, it's rare. You know, it's not. And you're right. I didn't realize 20, 30 years later, uh, you know, I'm 34 years sober now, that that people could end my career based on this, you know, uh, you know, the management has told me to stop sharing it. You know, my wife has mentioned, you know, it's a different world, but it's out there. So I, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not that guy. So to me, I look at that man that did that is not me. I'm born again. I'm, I'm not that man. Um, never did it. I, I, I it, and, and it's interesting to me. I, I'll look at it this way. My son took the beating for his wife, my, his mom. I was going to beat his mom and he starts crying 
and he takes. I mean, I. Yes, it's it's shameful. You know, who thinks like that? Well, a crazy, insane, drunk thinks like that, and and that's not an excuse. That's a reality. It would have been horrible if, if what kind of horrible man would I have been if I kept doing it? It got me into recovery. I went to AA the next day. I told Tammy, I said, if you don't take me, I won't go. And if I don't go, I, God, babe, we're not going to make it. I got to quit drinking. This is wrong. I mean, everything about it was wrong. It was humiliating. And uh, anyway, I went in there and they said, pray. I said, to what? And that set me off. That 12-step program set me off on a journey of uh, just, I needed to know if God existed or if he didn't. I mean, I, I wasn't saying that, but that's all of my actions were from that point on trying to figure out if, if there was such a thing as God, I didn't, I didn't believe in God, but um, you know, through self-help new age, that was popular Buddhism. I tried that. I tried, I tried everything uh, to the point where I wound up on humanism with Ayn Rand and, uh, you know, seven years into this 12 step thing. Um, this is why it's supposed to be an anonymous program. I was miserable because I couldn't get my head around the God thing or why anything mattered. And, um, that was, that was my, cross to bear was meaninglessness of life. Um, if we had one argument, we had a dozen arguments about my apathy. I tell people all the time, if you're in a marriage state that's full of acrimony, wait till you get to apathy. There's nothing more painful than two people who profess to love each other that are just apathetic about each other. I was apathetic about everything. I didn't care about comedy. I didn't care about the bills, I didn't care about, you know, uh, we were functioning, but barely. And eventually, we got to the point where we fell behind in our mortgage. And Tammy would say to me, I get the impression you don't care. And I go, I don't care. She goes, who says that? I go, someone who doesn't care. I go, I, you want truth? I'll give you truth. I don't care. I, I, I want to care. Believe me. I wake up in the morning. You know, I, I, I understand my responsibilities. We've had those discussions. She goes, look, if I could go out and make the money, I would. She goes, I do everything else. I would, I would get a job. I put her skill set. You know, we, we were living based on a comedian skill set and, uh, she could, you know, she was a waitress, you know? And, uh, I, I just, I, you know, I, I think back at that time, you know, I feel so sorry for her to have to live with me. She's trying to shake me into like living. I was a walking dead man because I just couldn't figure out why anything mattered. It's all senseless. I found there was a word for it. I didn't know what it was until like years later, but nihilist, I was in nihilism. I just didn't care about anything. And um, God in his infinite wisdom, you know, again, this is hindsight. I could see his hand in, in this, this journey. Why not exhaust everything the earth has to offer and and then I'll reveal myself to you at the right time. You know, and it's his time, not mine. And I had 
traded my obsession for alcohol and drugs for golf. I just, it's, it's just as expensive and just as annoying, but it's legal. And, um, that was my sanctuary. I would go out to the golf course and I was always a pretty good golfer, but, um, somewhere in my mid thirties, I naively thought that I could get good enough to make a living at it, you know? And, um, because I'd broken par a couple times and, you know, but I never had instruction. So I decided to start taking lessons, and, uh, basically salving the wounds of a, of a failing marriage, um, with this, you know, I, I felt that if I could do as well in golf as I was able to do in baseball years earlier, that maybe, maybe I could make a living at it, you know? And, um, so Tammy grew to resent just the mere mention of the game. I mean, I don't blame her. In hindsight, every spare minute I had, I was at the golf course, either with the kids or by myself. Again, it was my sanctuary. It was my one place I could go that I felt I had control over and something mattered. What my The process of the game and the score of the game is what something mattered to me. So that was where I was getting meaning which anybody will tell you if you assign that to the game of golf, you are setting yourself up (laughs) for the most miserable existence you can ever have. When your self-worth is connected to a score on the golf course, you're in trouble. Your family's in trouble. The world's in trouble because nothing, nothing is more uncontrollable than the final number. You know, you just, you can go out there. Anyway, I don't want to get into the golf thing, but um, I had found something. And again, God uses everything in our life for his purposes. Romans eight twenty eight, It all gets worked out for the good. I heard about a guy doing comedy for a hundred bucks a week and, uh, he was a multimillionaire businessman. I'm reading Ayn Rand, and I'm now I've come to the conclusion I need to make money. I need to, this will be my new thing. Uh, it only matters how much money I make. And um, I figured if I can, I can learn something about accumulating wealth from someone who's actually accumulated wealth. I'm working with other comics. We're all broke. You know, so what are they going to tell me? Here's a guy who's got money who just wants to do comedy as a hobby. And uh, I find out he's an avid golfer and he belongs to Preston Trail in Dallas, which is a, a premier club, Muirfield Village in Columbus, Ohio. And he has connections at Augusta National. Soon as I heard that, I told my agent at the time, I want to work with this guy. And he goes, why is that that funny? I go, I don't care um, if he's funny or not. He can get me on Augusta. He's my new best friend. So what I didn't know was he was a devout Christian man who went to a church, Bible teaching church. So we're on a golf course one afternoon playing golf, and we're talking about, I'm trying to figure out how to accumulate wealth. And he says, you don't want a lot of money. I go, I don't. He goes, trust me, Jeff, if you had a lot of money, you'd mismanagement. You don't know how to handle what little you have. But why don't you develop a relate? And he said, you can't enjoy the creation 
any part of the creation to have a relationship with the one who created it. And I thought that sounded new agey. That was kind of cool. Where'd you read that at? He says, in the Bible. I never read anybody quote the Bible to me. So anyway, a couple of holes going by, we're talking some more. He said, you know, look, man, you sound like you're pretty miserable and you want, you know, if, if happiness was an act of human will, we'd all be happy. Right. I mean, you, we will ourselves happy. And I had enough sense to know that's true because I've tried to will myself to care about all the stuff we're losing financially. And I couldn't muster up the caring part to motivate me to work harder or whatever. So that made sense to me. Yes, if happiness was an act of human will, we'd all be happy. I'd will myself because I, I read it in the new age. Mm-hmm. You stand in front of the mirror, you affirm yourself. You know, there's, there's nothing more um, uh, satanic than man, Satan telling man, you are God. Started in the garden. Why does he want you to eat the apple? Why doesn't he want you not? Why do he doesn't want you to have his knowledge. In other words, he doesn't want you to be him. Why? Well, that's when we affirm ourselves. Anyway, it has to be connected to something earthly because what do you hold it to? No, the truth is something outside of us, something that designed and created us or something that gives us our value and worth. It's not the temporal external things that pass baseball, golf, you know? So I wasn't even there yet, but anyway, I, it made sense to me. And I said, that's kind of neat. So after a, he said, I finally started quoting the Bible. I said, stop it with the Bible. He goes, what do you mean? I go, you know, who reads the Bible? You know, he goes, I do. And I go, well, yeah, but really, he goes, what's your problem with the Bible? I go, you know, well, God, God's word, you know, really, if, if there was a God, you know, you know, I don't know. It's a little archaic. He says, what's in the Bible you don't think is true? I go, I don't know. I never read the Bible. He goes, well, you're not an atheist. You're a moron, you know. And, um, uh, I, you know, I wanted to react, you know, call him names and things, but then I would have lost Augusta. So um, I, I restrained my tongue. And I said, how so? And he said, I'll give you the short answer to discount it. What you're discounting as existing is an infinite being. In order to discount that, you yourself have to have infinite knowledge of the entire. So you're denying an omniscient being, and you yourself have to be omniscient to really truly deny it. It's a self-defeating argument. You cannot defend an absolute negative. And I looked at him and said, what? What are you talking about? You know, he goes, you're not smart enough to be an atheist. That's basically what he told me. I wasn't smart enough to figure out if he was insulting me or not. So anyway, we parted company that week with, we'll stay in touch. He said, I like you. I don't know why he said that. I was a foul-mouthed, angry, bitter, jaded, club-throwing lunatic. And um, he said, can I sign you up for Bible study tapes from our church in Denton, Texas? And I said, you can, as long as it doesn't cost me money. You can sign me up for anything you want. So he signed me up for the Bible tapes and they started coming in the Bible. He sent me a Bible that was with three or four days of getting home. I got the Bible. I threw it in a junk drawer and I never listened to the tapes. And we, uh, we developed this friendship and he literally loved me 
into the kingdom. He told me he prayed for my wife and I. Our marriage fell apart. We um, filled out divorce papers and had them notarized. We were um, weeks later, you know, she asked for, you know, um, let's just file those papers. And uh, she, um, we were driving to the courthouse. So we got 10 minutes from filing them in Arizona. She changed her mind. I mean, if you don't think God will bring you to the edge of your life, 10 minutes, I file those papers. I lose 25 years with a woman I never knew I could love like this. Mm-hmm. That was 20, 25 years ago. And um, um, he ended every conversation with we, we Carol and I, his wife, and we pray for your marriage. And it meant nothing to me, but he didn't care. This is a class in discipleship for the hard-headed, foul-mouthed, angry <laughs> you know, uh, congregant. But uh, I saw him the way he lived his life, and it was attractive. I saw the material things he had, which were attractive to a pagan. But in the end, I found myself, I was always drawn to men of character. Even when I was drinking, there were guys in my neighborhood that went home and took care of their wives and kids. Yeah, I got to go home. I got to go to work tomorrow. And I just, I used to laugh. Well, work, work, ah, you know. And uh, I was living on a mattress on a floor, you know, um, at 20-some years old. So um, anyway, the time came. We, we got our marriage kind of sort of back on track. And uh, a number of months went by. And I was really just miserable. And Tammy finally said, Jeff, you're draining me. I'm going to take the kids and I'm going to go to my parents' house for the summer. I'm going to spend the whole summer with my parents. You got to figure out what you want to do. We got to either sell the house or uh, we got to cut our lifestyle, something. You need to get, you need to, you need to start making some decisions. What do you want to do with your adult life? And uh, she was right. So I said, all right, well, okay, I'll, I'll take the summer, you know. And she gathered up all these tapes, about a year's worth, threw them at my feet. And uh, anyway, a campaign where I just listened, the first tape I pulled out of all these tapes, you think this is a coincidence, but it was Ecclesiastes. Um, and it's the NIV version, meaningless, meaningless, all in life is meaningless. And that first sermon I got, I listened to a sermon that changed my life. Um, that uh, they say an alcoholic can remember his first drink vividly, and I can. It was my sister's wedding, and I had a seven and seven, Seagram seven and seven up, and it the change that came over me from that drink changed my life in a bad way. The moment I heard this sermon, and he summed it up. The summary was life without God will have no meaning without meaning to your life. There's no purpose to your life and without purpose to your life, suicide. And in one 45 minute sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes chapter one, it summed up my eight year conclusion that I had no meaning. I had no purpose and I hadn't gotten to suicide, but it made sense to me if I went any longer. So I tore open all these envelopes looking for more Ecclesiastes tapes. I, I devoured the book of Ecclesiastes through this pastor in Denton, Texas. A 3,000-year-old document spoke more to me about life in America 
in the 20, 20th century than any of those self-help books. You know, and I tell churches this all the time. You walk in any bookstore in America, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of books of man's attempt to find meaning and purpose apart from God. The Bible stands alone. It never hasn't changed, hasn't changed in thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And um, I devoured that book, and I got to Genesis 1-1, which I think Francis Schaeffer said was the most pregnant verse in the Bible. It gives birth to everything else. In the beginning, God created and that's when I realized there was a God that was created, that was designed, and every cell in my body was put there um, for a purpose. It wasn't some cosmic accident. I didn't fall out of a tree. I didn't, you know, primordial or whatever they tell you it is. I, you know, I'm not versed enough in, in their Genesis stories. But I knew there was a God. I called Philip, and um, I was sobbing on the phone. There's a God. And he said, uh, yeah, I've been trying to tell you for like a year and a half, <laughs> you know? And, uh, I said, yeah, but I didn't know it. And he goes, you got a problem with it. I said, blasphemy. How's that? Cursing them, denying them. Why would he want me? I mean, I looked at what I was and who I was. And to think of walking in to that relationship, why would he want me? And he told me that's what the cross was for. He said, study the cross. Get out of Ecclesiastes, get out of Genesis, and go to the New Testament, study the cross. And when I heard the story of the prodigal son, man, I still, to this day, 25 years walking this faith, when I hear a good sermon on the prodigal son, I, I, I break down. What a great picture of sleeping with pigs and swines and filth in the Jewish faith. Right. Pigs to come home and have your father, I'm going to get emotional again, I'm sorry, but to have your fathers push everything aside and run with open arms to his fallen son. What a great picture. What a great picture. And I knew I was welcome. That story, that thing, and the prostitute at the well, when Jesus said, if you drink from that water, you'll thirst again. And that spiritual thirst I had my whole, for that whole decade of my 30s, starting with self-help, I was trying to quench this thirst with New Age and Buddhism and humanism and all these other things that man has created. It quenched it for a while, but it would always thirst again. Jesus said, I offer you a living water. Drink from this well and you will never thirst again. And I have never thirsted again for 25 years. I read other things, but it's not. I, I devour the Bible, and I try, try. Believe me, I'm not, I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress, but I, I'm turning nowhere else. We, for, for answers to these for these existential questions, that's for sure. We all are a work in progress, and as you're sitting there and talking about how the Bible revealed all of this to you, I couldn't help but think of 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 one verse that says that God's word is living and active, and sharper than a two edged sword. And it 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 cut you coming and going, didn't it? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And it uh, convicts. Um, you know, it was interesting. Someone said, how do you know the Holy Spirit is real? And um, I have a couple of really minor things. You know, they're certainly not. Um, we had a car breakdown. And um, that was normally a, a an invitation for me to um, break into a, a self-pitying tirade about why in the car, Tammy braces herself for the coming tirade. And I look over at her and I go to my, my son in the back seat. Hey, I saw a gas station about a mile back. You know, why don't we go back there? This is again before cell phones. So we'll see if we can get a tow truck out here or something. And Tammy looks at me and goes, that's it? And I said, yeah, I don't know why it just hit me, but mechanics pray too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always tell the churches, I go, look, I know it's not a road to Damascus moment. I didn't get struck blind or anything, but it was the most one of the most profound things because I had just read the verse, do not worry about this life. I will send a counselor in the form of the Holy Spirit to help you. You know, and that, is that it? I, I remember looking at the heavens going, is this the counselor? Is this what it is? Wow, how cool is that? You know, and uh, there were a number of things like that. You know that I would normally react one way, um, and then I stop, and things would pop into my head. You know, oh, oh, maybe that's it. You know, and um, again, it's to the pagan, uh, to the skeptic. You know, you know, it's like I always give the example. I could tell you things I love about my wife, tangible, you know, things, how beautiful she is, her sense of humor, her intelligence, her compassion for others, all of that. And you would look at me as a skeptic and go, I can find somebody prettier, smarter, funnier, you know, probably more compassionate, you know, would you drop your wife? And he go, no, I wouldn't drop her. Why? Well, there's these things you can't see, touch, taste, or smell, but I can feel mm -hmm. something that draws me to her. And that's that relationship with Christ. It draws me to him. He draws me to him. I want more of that. And uh, I can't give it to anybody. I can't explain it. But it's real to me. Jeff, um, Jeff it, anyway. it, it, yeah, it, it sounds like you've gotten to your destination. And I told you I wanted to be respectful of your time. So just a couple of quick things yeah. and, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, 25 years later, I can still hear the passion. I can still hear the emotion in your voice. And and besides the, the comedy tour, I know you speak at churches and, and, and share this testimony and tell this story over and over and over again, and, and yet I can hear it. It doesn't get old to you, does it? No, not at all. It's, it's life-changing. You know, it's funny when you hear about people who've been wounded by their parents who've never healed, and that passion that they have, it's a negative passion, but that anger that comes up with it, you know, when something changes your life as profound as this, I mean, of course you want to shout it from the rooftops, you know? And, um, yeah, you're right. I, I've never, it, it, it hasn't gotten old. That's for sure for me. Um, and, and you hope that it reaches those hearts out there that are, just seeking, seeking, 
something, you know, something isn't right. You know, something doesn't fit. You're not the kind of person you, you behave in ways that you know, aren't you. And there's an answer. There is an answer. Just get on your knees and, and succumb to the calling. He's calling you. He really is. Um, and once you submit to him, that's where the strength comes from. That's what's so paradoxical about the whole thing. You know, the strength in character, the strengths in principles, the strengths to stand up. And, 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 you know, somebody once said that a man isn't truly alive till he has something in his life worth dying for. Something bigger than his own life. And, you know, I found it with my wife and my children. Yes, I'd like to think that I would die for them. Yeah. But, you know, I would die for this because I know it's real. It's just an incredible, incredible testimony. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing it. I, I will tell people they can go to your website, jeffallencomedy.com, and, and see the uh, the schedule you have. It's running through uh, a good portion of, of the early part of next year even, but you're coming up. You're going to be in Pennsylvania and Delaware yeah. and Arkansas and Missouri and Ohio. Um, you're an old man. you got to st- slow down at some point, I don't am. you? I know. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Jeff, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. All right. Thank you. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? It had nothing to do with me. Uh, and, and I was smart enough, and I can't say this very often, but I was smart enough at one juncture just to say, Jeff, take off, and I'm going to be quiet. And I hope you could hear the passion. I hope you could hear the emotion in his voice uh, as he told his story and how he got to that point 25 years ago where he accepted Christ into his life and what he's done now. And again, he's still a touring comedian. And as I said at the open, he is a funny, funny man with a very unique outlook on life. Um, but he's not afraid to share his testimony. And as we wrapped it up, you heard it, it, the, the passion 25 years later is still there. And I think that's a that's an inspiration for all of us who uh, are Christians who who have had their lives changed by Christ to to have that kind of passion to share what Jesus has done in our lives. And and I just can't thank him enough for doing that. Again, his website jeffallencomedy.com, and you can find his entire touring schedule. Go on YouTube. You can find other versions of his testimony. You can find some of his old stand-up material. It's just, it's hilarious, uh, and it's obvious that it's a life that God has blessed. There's no question about that. Uh, I I do need to mention the folks who uh, normally we will play commercials, but I just want to mention them today again because of the length of this. Scott Fowler uh, at Guaranteed Rate, Dana McMahon and Goosehead Insurance, Kraft Axe Throwing, Shane's Powerhouse Washing, my buddy Booty Catherine and Motive School of Movement, Ed Patterson and Patterson Tax Service, um, uh, State Farm. Patterson Tax Service is a old sponsor of mine from years ago, but uh, Ed Patterson, your State Farm agent. The Hall of Fame Sports Grill, Hank's Beverages, Bracken Roofing and Gutter, Pickens Family Chiropractic, Security Complete, and of course, Tadaro Pizza, our presenting sponsor. Hope you will. Uh, Tell those folks how much you enjoy it. I hope that you'll share this podcast episode. We want to hear from you. The Dan Scott Show at gmail.com is the email address, uh, or you can comment 
wherever you're listening to it. We're on iTunes, we're on Google, we're on Spotify, we're on TuneIn, we're on iHeart. Really no excuse unless you're just ignoring us, which a lot of people do. But we love doing it. Try to bring you something that brings value to your life on a weekly basis. And I hope that today did that. Thank you again to the incredible Jeff Allen for the time that he spent with us and look forward to being back with you again on the next episode. This has been episode five of the Dan Scott Show podcast. We will see you again next week. Until then, I'm Dan saying God bless you and so long, everybody. 